0: Galatians chapter 2 is where we're going to pick up this morning. And uh, I want to talk to you this morning about uh, what it means uh, to be justified in Christ, what it means to uh, trust Christ alone for salvation. You know, I, I really want to talk to you about what is a Christian. Uh, what, what is a Christian? There, there's some very important words in our text today. And mainly we're going to get what we're talking about. We're going to get the main idea out of verse 17, and we're going to look at the rest of the passage here in chapter 2 in just a minute. But remember when we talked about justification last week, or maybe you've heard about justification, the doctrine of justification, and, and what justification is. What is justification? You know, I told you last week it is that God looks at us just as if I never sinned, right? You got it? Justification, it's one of those, it is one of those great places where the translators from the Greek had a great English word to apply to the doctrine that they were trying to communicate to the, to the text there. To justify something does not mean to change it, it does not mean to change the thing, it means to change your view of the thing. Let me see if I can help you understand what, I, what justification is and what I mean when I say that. To justify something, you don't change it. You change your view of it. Here's how it works. This is a true story. <clears throat> there was a teenager in high school, and he was in the hallway in his, in his school, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, his classmates and his teachers and his, his principal saw him rear back and just slug another guy in the hallway. I mean, he popped him so hard that it knocked him out. He hit the floor. And, and you know what, happen, what would happen in a high school? The crowd rushes out. You know, the guy's out cold, he's out flat. And a crowd rushes up. The teacher rushes up. You know, the kid that's just clocked the guy uh, is knowing that he's going to get some, a little heat for uh, what's just taken place. Um, and uh, so the principal runs up, and the principal actually saw the event. He rushes up, and he grabs the kid, and he pulls him toward himself, and he says, you're out of here. You're gone. You are expelled. Uh, We are not going to have any part of this. What does the kid say? The kid looks at the principal, and he says, would you please look in his pocket? And so the principal bends down, and, and he looks in the pocket of the kid that he had just clocked there was a gun there was a gun in the kid's pocket and the knocked out kid's hand was on the gun you see that's a picture of what justification is like justification doesn't change an event he didn't change the event he slugged him he he hit him it was there it was on the record it was witnessed everybody saw it he didn't change the behavior what he did was he changed the view of his behavior. That's what justification does for us. To justify something does not change the behavior but how it's regarded, how it's treated. We would normally have been 100% with the principal, wouldn't we? We'd have said, you're out. You're expelled. We're not going to have that in our school. The astounding, astounding thing I think that we have to remember is that at the essence of being a Christian is the word justification. God has changed the view. What does it mean to become a Christian? You know, people often say, oh, well, when you become a Christian, uh, it's where you make a promise that you'll be really good or that you'll really live for Jesus or, or you know, that... Um, you know, you'll, you'll really repent, or, or you'll ask for Jesus, or you'll pray more. You, people have all these answers for what it means to be a Christian, and those are all part of it, but that is not the whole. All those things are involved, but is that the essence? To become a Christian is not to become good. You ought to become good, but that's not, what the, that's not the core of it. That's the result. The essence of becoming a Christian is when you were justified. It doesn't mean that suddenly you stop being bad. It doesn't mean that, that, that you're, you're suddenly going to give up your, your sin and, and all those things. It should, but it doesn't mean it will. It means that you're lo- no longer viewed in the same way. You're no longer seen like you once were. It means that your sins can no longer bring you into condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that you're accepted. It means that you are righteous before God. This morning we're going to talk about Paul's understanding of justification. And we're going to talk about some of the objections that some of Paul's critics had and those kinds of things. But at the heart of what we're talking about this morning, we're talking about what it means to be a Christian. You can't get any more basic than that. It's like the football coach that says, Team, this is a football. This is the heart of the matter. Let me read our text this morning. I want to read verses 15 all the way through verse 21 because it's one kind of unified uh, idea here, but we're going to look at that last paragraph, verses 17 to 21, as our focus this morning. And on the screen, I have uh, put up for you And, you know, I should have used another color, uh, I guess, but um, this this side, the the left-hand side of the screen is a translation that was done by uh, one of my uh, professors from RTS years ago. Um, This was uh, done by Simon Kistemacher, and uh, this one is done by the ESV. And you'll note that I've highlighted some of the words that are um, a little bit different, I love the way uh, in verse 17 uh, he, he translates, is Christ then a sin promoter? I think that's so much more striking to our thinking than the question, is Christ then a servant of sin? Is Christ a sin promoter? Anyway, uh, I've highlighted some of the changes in the text. Both texts are reliable. I'm going to read from the ESV when we get to that section uh, this morning. Or actually, I got the whole thing there. I, I, I was afraid that I was just going to have to give you 17 to 21, but I squeezed it. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And now our text. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin, a promoter of sin? Absolutely, certainly, 100%, no way, not. Paul uses a strong, strong negative here. Meganoite. It means absolutely not. It has a sense of, of, are you kidding me? Not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thus ends the reading of the Word of God. Let us pray. Father, We ask this morning that you would take the inerrant, inspired, holy word of Christ, your word, and that you would amplify it in our hearts. That we would walk away from worship this morning, we would walk away from the preaching of the word today, and that we would understand a little bit better who we are, and that we would understand all the more Why, you are the one who is worthy of our love, who is worthy of our lives, who is worthy of all of our worship. Oh, Father, use your word. Let your spirit work grace today. I pray in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. What we have just read here this morning is Paul's positive example of what it means to live out the truth of the gospel. You may not not realize that here as you look at this, but Paul himself is giving himself and using himself as a positive example. He's saying that my life is is kind of the paradigm for gospel-rooted living. These verses don't merely just contain a bunch of interesting theological ideas, although I will tell you there is a lot of theology here, and it grips my heart in ways that um, many things don't. Paul is, t- is offering a provocative description of a gospel-rooted way of life. And it comes in, in a way that, that maybe we don't think of very often. What Paul describes here is the shape of, the gospel has taken in its own life. Cruciformity. It actually is a word. Cruciformity. It means in the shape of the cross. It means conformed to the image of the cross. That's what life in Christ is all about. Paul describes it here. What does he say? He says, I have been crucified with Christ, 220. The heart of the gospel-rooted living is cruciformity it's conforming to the cross it's life in christ is is all about being crucified with christ now what does that mean practically what does that mean for us as as believers as as you read through the book of galatians and, and as you read it as a whole which is something that i would suggest that you do um, maybe once a week as part of your devotional life, because David and I are preaching through Galatians, read through it once a week and just see what it, what it has to say as you read through it, you will discover something. The book of Galatians is literally littered with references to the cross. Some of the references are, are overtly referencing the cross, some of them are talking about our redemption, about the idea of the cross i 've listed a few of those pla- or most of those places for you there. Galatians is full of the cross. So so what I'm trying to tell you is is that cruciformity, that the cross of Jesus Christ and living in conformity to the cross is the, for lack of a better word, it it is the the Christological center of gravity for the book of Galatians. It it is the thing that, that keeps Galatians afloat and keeps everything centered in the right direction, Christ stands forth in this book as the one who is crucified. It is his death who, who is the example par excellence of, of what it means to, to suffer persecution. It, it is the example of the substitutionary atonement, that, not just the example, it is the substitutionary atonement that has been made for our sin. And that, in turn, is... Shapes Paul's view of suffering. Shapes Paul's view of what it means to live as a Christian in conformity to the cross. Cruciformity. Not a word you use a whole lot in your day-to-day vocabulary, right? But it's a word that I want you to to kind of etch into your thinking. I I want you to think about how your life represents the cross to the world how how your life is is conformed to the cross of jesus just like paul did you know paul by understanding that his life was conformed to the image of the cross and the image of christ was willing to take gospel risk that he wouldn't norm that the normal human being wouldn't have done right think about paul's life and ministry as a whole because he knew what jesus had done on the cross he was willing to go he was, willing to take, he was willing to be beaten. He was willing to die for Jesus' sake. He was willing to give testimony wherever he was about the grace of God that had worked in his life. In your life, if your life is truly rooted in the gospel, then cruciformity ought to be the shape of your life too, and mine. I fear that mine doesn't, doesn't reflect the shape of the cross as it should, but if the gospel has taken root. God won't let you continue with the pattern of this world. He steadily transforms us. He slowly and steadily makes us more like His Son so that we increasingly look like Him. It means your life will look more and more like crucifixion. More and more like sacrificially giving yourself for the sake of others. Cruciformity is the form. Cruciformity to the cross of Christ. Hey, That's not what the evangelist would tell you, is it? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and all is going to be peaches and cream, and it's all going to be beautiful. And Christ is calling you to conform your life to the cross, to follow the example that He has laid down. I think we need to be careful that we need to keep the balance. Oh, absolutely, God loves you, and God does have a wonderful plan for your life, but that plan means being more like Jesus, and being more like Jesus means taking on the form of the cross in our lives day after day after day. There's hardly a more important thing to think about, I don't believe, than the cross of Jesus Christ. I think Paul, as he's writing to the Galatian church and, and as he's writing to those who, who are, are objecting to his gospel or who are the Judaizers, those, those people who... The, you know who the Judaizers are, right? I mean, they are a bunch, they, they are a bunch of, of believers. They are Christian people, uh, most of them, who were Jewish in their background and who said, look, if you want to be a good Christian then you just take all the Jewish uh, patterns of life, all the Jewish ceremony and ritual, and you add the cross to it. That's basically what a Judaizer was. They said, if you want to be a good Christian, you'll continue to practice circumcision. You'll continue to practice the the, the rites of of, uh, Judaism, and you'll add your faith to that. And Paul says, no, no. We are not made right before God by the things that we do. We're made right by God to God before God by the things that Christ has done for us. The Judaizers were well-intended. They were Jewish Christians who wanted to add the gospel to their Judaism. That's basically it. Some of them probably were uh, former Pharisees and, and people like that. I think Paul would have the Galatians in us. Not just believe the gospel, but embody the gospel. So maybe we need to take a step back for a second and, and think about the cross for just a second. If it really is a center of gravity that, that I think it is, and, and I'm certain it is, then I think we ought to talk about what the, Christ, what the cross symbolizes for us. It symbolizes what Jesus did. You know, there's, there's not a more important question that you can answer in life. There's, there's no deeper need of mankind than to know how we can be accepted by God. I talked last week about that in particular. What Jesus did in his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension was to do what you cannot do and what you don't want to do. What Jesus did was he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. He never disobeyed. His thoughts were always pure and right. He did what God required. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbors as he loved himself. He took on this human flesh and he dwelt among us and he was tempted in every way as you and I had been tempted, and yet was without sin. His record was 100%. Perfect righteousness. And he died the death of a sinner. He died on a cross to pay the debt that you and I don't want to pay. He took your record of total depravity. Do you understand what total depravity is? Total depravity isn't that we are just totally bad, that we are as bad as we could possibly be, and that there's nothing good in us. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are created in God's image and that we are created good, but that we are fallen. And that sin has tainted, has touched every area of our lives. I don't know if you were here. It's been maybe 10 years ago now. Uh, We had a missions conference uh, about 10 years ago, and I had asked Jean LaRue, a friend of mine, to come and to preach for us for that uh, missions conference. And Jean LaRue uh, was working, he was doing a church plant uh, down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and uh, he had been there when Hugo had blown through. Harley and Sharon went with us. uh, Some others went with us to work on a missions trip down there with uh, Jean. But anyway... He, uh, as he was preaching, he gave, a, he gave the most beautiful illustration of what sin is, and it was the illustration of a chicken truck. You see what had happened? I'm not going to give you the whole illustration. Maybe you'll remember this if you were here. As they were doing the recovery from the hurricane, Tyson Chicken said, we will send you a, ch- a refrigerated truck to the Gulf Coast, Mississippi summertime you think it's hot in florida you just you just go to mississippi gulf coast okay it's hot it's humid and the bugs are bad but they sent this chicken truck loaded with frozen chicken tyson's chicken and Jean was supposed to uh distribute that to the people who had needs because they were i mean it was right after the hurricane and they were doing hurricane recovery and everything else well long story short the power got cut off the truck sat there in the Mississippi Sun. Two days, three days. And they knew it shut off, so they knew they couldn't distribute the chicken. But they had to dispose of the chicken. And so they pulled open the doors to that chicken truck. You talk about stench. He said, he said it would make a buzzard gag. It was horrible. He used that illustration to talk about the way our sin smells before our righteous, holy, heavenly Father. You know, we think that our sin may smell like the bottom of our trash can. Oh, no, no. It's worse than a chicken truck. Our sin is is a stench. It smells of death and rot and decay before holy God. And Jesus took your stink on himself on the cross. He bore your sin. He transferred your record of unrighteousness to himself. He was tainted, rotten chicken for you and he gave you his holy, perfect life. He transferred one life for the other. The doctrine that I'm talking about here, the transfer of righteousness to an unrighteous person and unrighteousness to a righteous person, is called the doctrine of imputation. Jesus Christ imputed to us his perfect record of righteousness on the cross. He died as a sinner when we should have died, not him. He took your place. He bore God's wrath for you. That's what the cross is all about. And that's what conforming to the cross ought to begin to look like in your life. Jesus took your stink. He bore God's wrath. And not only did he bear your wrath for your sins today, and for your sins past. But get this. Paul would tell us that Jesus bore your sins for sin's future. You're already covered. Judaizers didn't like that too much. Didn't make them happy. Jesus bore our sin. God accepts us on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. How can can righteous God accept an unrighteous individual like me? The answer is in Galatians 2.16. By works of the law, no one is justified. The cross is symbolic of what Jesus did to transfer that. When we put our faith in Christ, God treats us as if we are as righteous as Jesus is. (laughs) You don't earn it couldn't do it you don't merit it in any way justification is the judicial act in which god pardons sinners he considers us righteous because of the righteousness of christ when he justifies a sinner god declares that as far as he is concerned the sinner is as righteous as his own son martin luther talked about imputed righteousness this way i've got a quote for you because you believe in me god says and your faith takes hold of christ whom i have given to you as a justifier and savior therefore be righteous thus god accepts you or reputes are righteous solely on account of christ in whom you believe calvin put it this way It is entirely by the intervention of Christ's righteousness that we obtain justification before God. This is equivalent to saying that man is not just in himself, but that the righteousness of Christ is communicated to him by imputation while he is strictly deserving of punishment. Imputation instead of punishment. Here's the way the Westminster Shorter Catechism does it in in question number 33, question and answer. It says, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins, accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. I especially like the way the Heidelberg Catechism gives it to us. It's a little fuller uh, explanation The Heidelberg Catechism asks the question, how how art thou righteous before God? How are you righteous before God? The answer, only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commands of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding... God, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, even so, as if I never had had or committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ hath accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart here's the given we though we're justified in christ in ourselves we're still sinners you see that in the sight of god we're justified god's view of us has changed but we're still sinners god sees us and he sees us as perfect and accepted but we're still sinners. What's a Christian? You know, every other religion, every other philosophy, every other worldview would say that, that either you're a sinner and you're um, trying to be righteous or you're righteous and you're used to be a sinner. Maybe you're 30%, 70%, maybe you're 50-50, you know, whatever the other religions say. Every other religion says that basically uh, you're a moral failure or you're honored and loved by God. Depends on uh, whose philosophy you call. What is a Christian Here's what Christianity teaches. Here's the truth of the scriptures for you. The the scriptures clearly teach that a Christian is an honored failure. That, That the Christian is a righteous sinner. That the Christian is a justified sinner. While we're justified in Christ, we're still sinners. Actually, there's a place where, where Paul says it even more starkly. And Jonathan Edwards preached a, a sermon on uh, this passage in uh, April of uh, 1735, I think it was. It's Romans chapter 4, verse 5. In Romans 4 5, he, he preached this passage. Edwards preached this passage. And you know what happened? A third of the town in which Edwards lived was converted. It started a revival. What was the verse? Paul says, now to him who does not work but trust in him who justifies the ungodly to him it is credited as righteousness. Do you see it? It it doesn't say if you clean yourself up. It doesn't say if if you kind of work your heart into a certain state God's going to justify you. No, to the one who stops trying to work and trust in the one, that's God, who justifies the ungodly. When you become a Christian, you're justified, yet you're still ungodly. You're a righteous sinner. You're an honored failure. Luther, again, I've been reading Luther's commentary on Galatians, and it's just been good. And um, Luther uses, he's the one who came up with this Latin phrase that's on the uh, front of the bulletin cover this morning, simu justus et peccator. Fancy Latin word to say, simultaneously, just, and a sinner. That's what a Christian is. Simultaneously, just, and a sinner. If you understand that, then you can spend the rest of your life seeing and and realizing and and trying to understand that, that you are utterly different from every other religious or irreligious person in the world. To understand that is what it means to live in cruciformity. I want you to think about that this week. It's a legal declaration and it's a participatory metaphor at the same time. It's who you are and how you live in Christ. Conform to the cross. So, second point. (laughs) You thought, oh, he might be almost done fooled you the argument about and i don't have much to go the argument of paul's critics uh, about justification by faith alone we've pretty much covered the waterfront on justification uh, i think this morning um here's where here's the way the the judaizers the pharisees who who had come to christ but who who wanted to add uh the jewish customs to, to to christianity syncretistic kind of religion here's their argument they they would say things like this they would say your doctrine of justification through faith in Christ only uh, apart from the works of the law is a highly dangerous doctrine Paul don't you realize what it is you're suggesting here it fatally weakens a man's sense of moral responsibility I mean don't we have to live by the commandments still Paul would say yes if we can be accepted through cr- trusting in Christ without any necessity to do good works, you're actually encouraging men to be lawbreakers, which is vile heresy, and it's called antinomianism, is what his detractors would say. It sounded like the doctrine of justification is like irresponsible. It's almost like um, uh, the the Christians had won a spiritual lottery and they got off scot-free. They could do whatever they wanted, you know, they would get the jackpot. People still argue that way today. They say things like, if God justifies bad people, what's the point of being good? Why don't we do as we like and live as we please, right? I don't have to obey Christ. I don't have to live by the Bible. I don't have to follow the commands or that kind of thing. I don't have to live that way. Paul's first response is like, I don't want to say it, but he really means, my wife's saying no, so I'm going to, (laughs) hell no, okay? That's what Paul really means. God forbid, by no means, certainly not, he specifically denies the added allegation that he was guilty of making Christ the agent or the author of man's sin. Uh, on the contrary, he says, I make myself a transgressor. Uh, in, in verse 18, in other words, if after my justification I'm still a sinner, it is my fault that it's not Christ's fault. I have only myself to blame. No one can blame Christ. And then he continues to refute, okay? Uh, he, 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 they charge him that justification by faith encourages a continuance in sin. He says it's ridiculous. Uh, they've grossly misunderstood the, ju- the doctrine of justification, that justification is not a legal fiction, okay? A legal fiction is, is you know, where, where um, someone gets off because they're declared something, but they don't have to change anything. Um, man's status has changed, but his character's left untouched. Paul says, no, there's an amazing change which comes over someone who is justified by Christ. Oh, we're still saved and secure and and born again and and justified before God, but we're still sinners. But it changes the way we live. Twice in verse 19 and 20, he speaks about our dying and rising again to life, doesn't he? Look at what he says, both places, both things take place through union with christ it's christ's death and resurrection that we share in look at verse 19 for i through the law died to the law in other words the law's demand of death was satisfied of the death of jesus and he goes on he says that i might live to god i died to the law i live to god verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, I've been united to Christ in his sin bearing death and my sinful past has been blotted out. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The justified Christian is not free to sin. In Christ, the old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. It's because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. They're not only historical events. He, does, he did give himself up then, and, and he now lives. But it's through our faith union with him as his people that we share in his crucifixion and his resurrection. I have been crucified. Now I live. Once we've been united with Christ Our old life is over. It's finished. It's ridiculous to suggest that we would ever go back to it. We've risen to a new life. To life in Christ. To cruciformity. Christ gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. That's who a Christian is. No Christian who's grasped those truths would ever seriously contemplate reverting back to the old life so let me summarize let me me just draw it all to a close because I know I've spoken a lot of words here this morning in summary I think there are four basic truths out of this text that I want you to get and I've enumerated them on the screen the first one is this man's greatest need is justification our greatest need is to be accepted by God in comparison with that, all other human needs, pale in significance. We need to be right with God. How can we be reconciled with God so that we spend time in eternity in his favor and his service through the cross? Second, justification is not by works of the law, but it is only by faith in Christ. We are changed by faith faith in Christ. Luther put it in a, again, I'm going back to Luther, sorry about that, three Luther quotes in one sermon. You'd think I was Lutheran or something. He says it pretty succinctly though. He says, I must hearken back to the gospel, which teaches me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me to wit that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. All right, our greatest need is justification. Justification is not by law, but by faith. Third, not to trust in Jesus. Not to fail to understand that, that Jesus is our substitute. Not to trust in Jesus Christ, because somehow we're trusting in our own ability is an insult both to the grace of God and to the cross of Christ, because it declares that both of those things are unnecessary. Do you see that? Last, to trust in Christ and thus be united to him is to begin an altogether new life. If we are in Christ, then we are more than justified. We find that we have actually died and risen again with him. We can say, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And it's true of who we are. I hope that you see the shape of the gospel. It all centers around the cross. It centers around cruciformity. Cruciformity is the shape of gospel-centered living. It's conformity not to the pattern of this world, but to the cross. It's our Christian calling. It's the challenge of discipleship, isn't it? Because the longer we live for Christ, the more and more we are to mature in him. And the way we mature in him is by taking on the shape of the cross in our day-to-day living. You know, it's a challenge not to be enslaved to the self-protective ways of our world and to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. But remember Jesus' words in Luke, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, if we want others to see Jesus Christ, then we need to consider what kind of radical, gospel-oriented sacrifice we make for the good of others around us. So they see the cross of Christ being fleshed out in your life. Oh, may we, may we all live a more gospel-rooted life than we do. My prayer for myself is that I would. My prayer for you is that you would take on a cruciform life to the glory of God. Let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that you've redeemed your creation And it's not because of who we are or what we did, but it's because of who you are and all that Jesus has done on our behalf. Would you enable us, Father, to live in light of the gospel? I ask in Jesus' name, amen.